week's host, Eddie Webb, and with me are Dixie Cochran. Hello there. And Matthew Dawkins. Eddie Webb! You have called <laughs> oh, me no. off for the last time! Uh, hello. I thought, I thought you were doing a horror thing, and then I realized it was probably a wrestling thing. It was, uh, uh, although that character, the Ultimate Warrior, or the person who played him, God rest his soul, was a pretty horrible person. No respect to the dead. No respect to the dead. <laughs> I'd say no disrespect, but I have no respect for this guy. Uh, I feel like no respect for the dead is a good theme for this episode. It really yeah. is, actually. Or, or a name for a sort of grungy band. Yeah, it's kind of a good name. No respect, no respect for the to... dead. Yes. Because we're on the edge. We live on the edge. We're practically falling off the edge. No respect for the dead. It's off their first album, Pizza Cutter, right? Yeah. <laughs> Knowledge. No point. Yeah. <laughs> There's no point to us. Actually, no. I, I just realized because the, the thing you were doing is a reference to a um, Twitter quote unquote war we did back in March. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I forgot about that. Where we were going to sell this at Gen Con. That's obviously not going to happen now. Yeah. There will be no exchange of the championship belt title if you uh, mm. live in WWE Universe at uh, Gen Con are you telling this year. Me, are you telling me that y'all planned the pandemic so that you wouldn't have to follow through on your Twitter one? No, word? no. This is probably the, uh, <laughs> the intervention of some heel in management. <laughs> Who is it keeping was me. us apart? It was me. It, yes. Uh, it was Dixie that was all along. Yeah. <laughs> Dixie is, in fact, the mastermind behind COVID. Yeah. yeah we, we shouldn't put that out there. No. Let's I end do that. the podcast here. We've uh, come to a satisfactory resolution. Someone let the World Health Organization know. <laughs> I'm going to go hide. <laughs> Um, no, we are not here to talk about how, how Misty Disk is. Wow. What's my name, Eddie? Misty. <laughs> I like it the Misty. Misty, Misty and then Disky? Wow. I, it, it's, <laughs> it has been, uh, uh, I would say it's been a week, but then I realize it's been a month, and I realize it's been a year. So it's been a, it's been a lot. Also, <laughs> if you're going to say it's a week, I need to refer you to the 30 Rock Lemon It's Only Wednesday quote. Yes. Yes. <laughs> that is true. It's been that's it's been a year. It's only March. I remember that back in the day. <laughs> yeah, now it's July because time is a flat circle. It is. It really is. Hmm. I feel like it's still March. It's like March four hundred and eighty third right now. Well, I mean, to a degree, it actually is for me because at the time of recording, um, Atlanta has gone back to stage one, um, and we're back to basically, uh, 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 don't go out in the shops. We need it. So it does feel like we're kind of recycling March. I feel like we never left that in Maryland. <laughs> like I feel like we haven't hit phase two. I think I think technically we have because I think that you could go like get a haircut now. Mm-hmm. But um, as far as the way I am acting, <laughs> and my boyfriend is acting, we're still in phase one. Like we we don't really go anywhere. I was talking to um, Megan Fitzgerald, one of our developers, yesterday uh, because we live near her, mm-hmm. and we kind of like we're talking a little bit about the idea some people have done where they've kind of expanded their quarantine bubble. Right. So they can hang out with a few select friends. Mm-hmm. But then we realized that both her partner and my partner have to go to work every other mm-hmm. week or so or on a semi-regular basis. Mm-hmm. And so there is no way to make sure that we're all effectively quarantined, if that's the case. Yep. Right. And like, I don't want to be responsible for like giving one of, you know, her partner's like coworkers an illness. 
because yeah. of that. So we're not really sure we could do it right now. Also, a couple of our other friends that we'd love to hang out with um, have various levels of being immunocompromised. So it's like, uh, well... I'll see you at some point. I miss you. Because yeah. <laughs> when I moved here to, to, to Maryland, like it was going to be so exciting. I have so many friends here and I have not seen a single one of them since I moved here. <laughs> I was uh, reading an interesting article. I know this dates the podcast. If you're listening to this next year when we're all living in a fuzzy utopia where viruses are no longer a thing, then good for you. <laughs> I hope we made it. Uh, but um, I was reading an interesting article uh, about how the isolation, especially in the US and the UK right now, which weren't necessarily the fastest nations to uh, catch up to the bouncing ball, um, <laughs> may end up uh, severely curtailing their cases of uh, flu uh, come autumn and winter. That's, that's some good news. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yay, us. Uh, because we will still be in this situation where we're isolating uh, and how, once those figures come out, uh, that you know fewer people have caught it because fewer people are mingling to transmit it, that this may just end up being a way that some people uh, start adapting to the winter, that people will just uh, naturally go out less. Uh, obviously, some aspects of life will return to normal because on one level, uh, I think society uh, demands it but also there's uh, there's a there's a social need that most people have to to mingle with people mm. uh, but i think on the other hand you're going to get people who are significantly more aware of the risks of viruses and how easy it is to catch them and so mm -hmm. at points when these viruses like influenza are more common yeah they'll just stay in order online. We've shown that we can do it in some parts of the world. Or, or wear a mask when you go out. Like, Yes, yeah, exactly, exactly the same. very normal in other countries, and it's mm -hmm. kind of weird that like most, I guess, Western countries didn't normalize that for the most part. That like you should wear a mask to protect people around you. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. uh, I... I shared a meme on social media a couple days ago where it's a, it's a screenshot from a 1995 Sailor Moon episode in which <laughs> Sailor Mars has a cold. But she still wants to go help her friends, and she shows up wearing a mask. And that's because in, in like, Japan and China and stuff, it's always been very normalized. That, like, right. you, you wear a mask if you're feeling a little ill, if there's something going around. Most people wear masks, not to protect themselves, but to protect each other. Mm -hmm. And I wish, and I, I just think because we have this, like, you know, individualism thing going on in Western culture, we... Uh, have decided not to do that <laughs> and it's really obnoxious oh. by the way this is the most we've talked about this kind of thing on the podcast for a long time so uh sorry to any of our fans who think that this is not real because it is <laughs> well, at, least, at least we're talking about it with with smiles on our faces ha, ha, right ha. i mean i mean I, I know we've generally tried to avoid uh, uh intensely political topics on this podcast this but isn't political this is a disease pandemic. is not a political topic right yeah. I, I believe this is a, a, a an existing topic but um, uh, regardless of, of how you feel about this, first of all, wear a fucking mask. And second of all, um, we're focusing on making cool new stuff. Uh, and one mm -hmm. of those is that we are doing a Kickstarter for the second They Came From game, which is They Came From Beyond the Grave. They said it Yay. couldn't be done. They said it would never happen. They said they'll <laughs> never trust Matthew Dawkins with a game again. I proved them wrong. <laughs> <laughs> 
honestly, I think they came from beyond the grave is going to have more reach within our typical audience than Beneath the Sea did. Well, put um, your money where your mouth is, Dixie. Uh, the, <laughs> the, the Kickstarter is currently running at the time that this goes up, barring uh, the creeks uh, rising. Um, right. But, yeah, um, I, I agree. I think I would be surprised if it doesn't. And it's strange not to start talking about They Came From's on a bum note, but in retrospect, I don't have any regrets regarding Beneath the Sea because it did exactly what I wanted to and more. Mm-hmm. But I didn't even consider this a line of games when we first started it. I thought, I'm going to tell my story about aliens invading from beneath the sea. Mm-hmm. Right? But I can, in retrospect look back and think, you know, it may have had ma- more mass market appeal if they were coming from space like most aliens do. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the, <laughs> the entire watery fixation is mine. I mean, it's pretty easy, though, if you want to change that one thing in your game of Beneath oh, the Sea. Like, oh, yeah. it's, the, it's the same game. Just call it Beyond the Stars. Yes, exactly. A lot of people do uh, opine with the next They Came From game, and Beyond the Stars is is a common one. And I can completely understand why Alien movies are very popular. But I think Beneath the Sea does everything you need for a B-movie alien game. Mm-hmm. If you're looking for it to be more like Aliens or Independence Day or uh, the like, you know, something a little more serious, then fair enough, Beneath the Sea might not be what you're looking for. Uh, although you can, of course, turn it serious. But if you're looking for cheesy B-movie horror, then Beneath the Sea has you covered. Just replace the sea setting with the space setting, and I think you're golden. Yeah, it would be super, super easy to hack for, like, any bad 50 sci-fi movie. Yeah. And I think it's, uh, you mentioned that uh, you did extend you want to tell your story. And I really feel like if you're doing something that that's newer in uh, a, a space, doing something that you feel passionate about is much better than doing something that's going to follow the market trends. Um, yeah. So, I mean, when uh, you first did this, it was the, no one had really thought about doing a, a I mean, there's been a couple of late night horror games in the past, like two I can think of uh, mm. in the past 40 years. Um, and neither of them were huge mass market successes, but you had to came with a very strong vision of what you wanted to do. And a lot of people were attracted to, even if they weren't necessarily into aquatic monsters, they were into, oh, this is a cool idea. We like this concept. And now that we've established that with the game from Nathan Steve, it's like, okay, enough people backed it and enough people pre-ordered it, that clearly there's some value there. Then we could try something different in that same space. And even though, again, like, to, uh, doing a game like this, which we'll get to in a moment with that, to find out what the game is in a second, but doing a game like this <laughs> is, is also coming to from your very specific lens of, of, of British and Italian horror films, not just generic horror. What if we just talked about it in really vague terms the whole time and never right, actually, yeah. like, like it's a it's a very shallow dive into They Came From Beyond the Grave. <laughs> a paddle, a paddle in They Came From Beyond the Grave. Yeah, we're nope, like, nope. We're, we're not actually going to talk what it's, like, what it's about or what you can do in it or what you can do with it or what the inspirations are. We're just going to say, like, it's it's pretty cool. It's Yeah. It's got, it's got some appeal, depending on what you like. Okay, fine, fine, fine. I'm going to say, so I'm going to put a twist on this, is like, uh, I'm going to say, yes, uh, uh, we should talk about what the game actually is, but I'm going to ask Dixie to do that instead of Matthew. Why? It's not my game. I know, but Uh, you worked on it. I'm now sitting here with, so did you. Uh, Yeah, yeah, so did you. (laughs) 
Uh, so the game Beyond the Grave is a game that is meant to emulate campy 1970s horror films. So think uh, like Hammer Horror. You could probably go into some of the like full tree stuff, um, which is a little more gore oriented. But you can dial the the gore and the horror up and down. Uh, it is definitely meant to convey that kind of like you know stilted acting and all of the things that we associate with with bad horror movies. Um, kind of like where in The King Beneath the Sea, we had, you know, your your monster could actually be a guy in a rubber suit. Uh, similar things going on with this. The cool thing, though, is that with this one, you can bounce back and forth between the 1970s, where, you know, your movie is being filmed and or taking place, and the 19th century, where your movie might be set and you can play both sets of characters, the 19th century versions of the characters and the 1970s versions of the characters. You could do a game that's entirely set in the, you know, moors of England and the Victorian era with werewolves howling across the, the, the mists. Or you could do one that's entirely set in disco clubs in New York where Dracula is stalking and killing people. Um, it, it, it really is a super, super flexible game when it comes to what kind of horror stories you can tell. That's actually a really good summation, I think. Yeah, you sold me. Well done. (laughs) Good job. You sold Matthew, the guy who made the game. It is very, very funny, too. I am very pleased with all the writing that I've seen for it and the writing that I did for it. Um, I I just... There's a a certain tone where you don't want to go, you know, over-the-top humor. Like, -hmm. you don't want it to become, you know, a scary movie, I guess. Yeah. Um, But you want to be able to kind of giggle at it occasionally much much like you do when you're watching an mst3k or a riff tracks movie yeah uh, i i agree i think there's the beneath the sea really revels in the farce of it the nonsense of a lot of what's on screen in the 1950s mm-hmm. uh, especially the utter seriousness with which uh, the, the nuclear family of the 1950s, as it were, is facing down this encroaching threat because, damn it, they're not communists. But in right. the 1970s, there's a certain element of malaise that I think has swept the world, uh, as we know historically, uh, and it has seeped into cinema as well. Uh, a certain element of cynicism, I think the actors are now a bit tired. Uh, they want to be making good films, but they just can't. And the budgets are low. Uh, cinema attendances are down. Uh, people aren't looking for hope so much now. They're looking for horror. And it's like the quality. Not not to say that some of these movies aren't excellent movies, but the, I guess, Hmm. The the prop quality, costume quality, the uh, the cinematography of these kinds of films was nowhere near what it would be in the late seventies, and mm-hmm. it's lost all the optimism of uh, I guess the avant garde of the nineteen sixties. Uh, so it it ends up with movies like Dracula AD nineteen seventy two, which does pretty much what <laughs> Dixie suggested uh where you have christopher lee with sideburns waking up in london 1970s to prey on party goers including coincidentally the descendant of van helsing right. uh, jessica van helsing i should add wow the uh, yeah. 70s are super interesting because like when it comes to horror the 70s gave us you know the exorcist they gave us 
Jaws. They gave us Wicker Man. Um, Amityville Horror, Halloween. Like so many movies came out in the 70s that are I- iconic horror movies. Yeah. Uh, but, but, but they also gave us, you know, The Night of a Thousand Cats and <laughs> Voodoo Black Exorcist and just weird exploitative yeah, I was about to say, if those stuff. Are, if those aren't exploitation movies, I would be very surprised. The Night of a Thousand Cats isn't. It's about no. evil cats. It's pretty great. It it also gave us Deathbed, The Bed That Eats, which I have seen. <laughs> I have seen and, that as well. That is is, I, terrible. Is, is that a French art movie? I'm trying to remember now. Um, uh, I don't it, think so. Maybe. It's a, it's a little like a portmanteau movie. This is the kind of tangent I love to go on because it's a movie where a succession of people... I don't think they even move into the same house. They just seem to enter this house it's it might be a young couple deciding they're going to find a place to uh, have sex and oh look there's an appealing looking bed mm-hmm. and so they sleep on it or do what they will on it and the bed as the title infers swallows them and then there's another guy <laughs> then there's another guy who comes in and five minutes later who <laughs> might be surveying the house to sell it so yeah and he just thinks oh that was a hard day surveying you know what no one else is sleeping on this bed covered in hair and gristle i'm going to uh, i'm gonna sleep on it. and it has this really weird effect after someone's been digested by the bed it has a close-up uh, shot if i recall of like a of yellow water in a fish tank and uh, someone just sort of squirts red mist into it. So you get this dung and mm. just red, <laughs> just blood entering the yellow. Apparently that's what the inside of the deathbed looks like. Yeah. Hmm. So I did a lot of research into, into bad horror movies from the 70s when we were working on this, just because I like I like finding the ones that I haven't heard of as well. Mm-hmm. And one of the ones I came across that was relevant to my interest is called The, the Bat People. Yes. Um, it came out in 1974. It is listed as a horror romance. Which really? That's, 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 that's the first thing I would like to let you know about it. Um, and I just want to leave you with the description of, of, of IMDb, which is, after being, after being bitten by a bat in a cave, a doctor undergoes an accelerating transformation into a man bat, which ruins his vacation and causes considerable distress for his wife. <laughs> <laughs> well, as long as it was only that. Uh, as long as he didn't murder anyone, or that's just like he's seriously burying the lead on that, you know. <laughs> yeah, I I highly recommend people go to IMDb and find the like worst rated horror movies because that's that that's where I did find things like you know female vampire torture dungeon, like right, just, just um, weird weird bad movies. Speaking right to that, um, uh, I actually yes I did work on it, oh, and specifically um, Matthew asked me to write the quips. Um, and so uh, I was trying to find ways to kind of shotgun a lot of horror films. And I found on YouTube, actually, there's an entire channel that's just 70s horror movie trailers. Hundreds of them. And so yes. I just sat and watched a whole bunch of these trailers and wrote down lines and tweaked lines and whatnot. And, like, I can't remember individual films because I went through so many of them in such a short period of time. Mm-hmm. But I the thing that came away from it is that there is a lot of obsession with the devil specifically. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's a lot of obsession with uh, uh, women, not only, not only women screaming, because that also happened in the fifties films, but also very specifically screaming with no context as to why they're screaming. 
It's just yeah, it, a random shot of a woman it, screaming. No idea what's going on with it. It's usually a sudden zoom as well to the woman screaming with her both hands on either side of her face. You know, pre Macaulay Culkin and Macaulay Culkin. Right. But the one that really baffled me is I feel like this may have been around the time where people realized that camera pans can work. There's a lot of pictures of panning around cars, like a car driving into scene and panning with the car. There's a lot, a weirdly disproportionate amount of shots of just following cars driving. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm like, I, I feel like there was, a, there was a technological advance at some point that became really cheap for these these movies to be able to do that. Um, because I'm just like, it, it was just such a strange, like, why is there so many pictures of cars in these movies that had nothing to do with cars? Well, and why are they in the trailers? Interesting you should mention that because Kubrick was one of the directors that pioneered those kinds of panning shots mm-hmm. and, and dolly shots and the like. Uh, mo- most famously, I guess, in The Shining, although it appears quite often in 2001 as well. And yeah, uh, he was very protective over his methods, but of course they leaked out. A lot of those... Mm. Um, a lot of those movies were just ripping straight off of Kubrick. And you've got to admire the, what would it be, the chutzpah, I guess, of yeah. some someone with a $100,000 budget thinking, you know what, I'm going to out-Kubrick Kubrick, Kubrick. <laughs> uh, <laughs> with the this tale of a thousand cats or, or the bat people <laughs> or Captain Kronos Vampire Hunter, as an example. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, you've got to admire it. Uh, even if it's not necessarily great. And the other thing I like about um, we've talked a lot about the kind of like the humor of it, um, and, but the, particularly I found interesting. I remember when you first pitched this, the time frame you're pitching is just before the films become aware of this trend. So it's right before mm-hmm. like trauma films, which right. is the early '80s. Um, so while the players are probably very steeped in an era where these these films are aware of being horrible you know i mean larry blamire he's worked on both of these games now and he's makes films exactly like that um but the films themselves have not quite caught up to where the audience is and it leads to an interesting kind of frisson i think in gameplay where the players are doing it for humor but the characters are being completely serious about it mm-hmm. yeah and i'd say we actually uh, blur those lines a little more in this game than we did with beneath the sea Mm-hmm. Because this is this is the first one. I know we've only done two, but this is the first one where the cinematics start referring directly to things like sets and costumes, and the 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 players having that humor, the actors having a certain jaded resignation about everything. And uh, while I still very much pitch the game as the players know what's going on, the characters do not. And they may well be playing characters themselves if you want. If you want it to be a um, Truman Show-esque, I guess, uh, story where you are playing actors playing characters, then you can do that. But just the same, you can have characters who from one scene to the next have a complete costume change going through a door. And theoretically, they shouldn't ever acknowledge it because Mm -hmm. that's just you as the player or the director having fun. Uh, and and using your cinematics, uh, but you could alternately have the characters acknowledge it and uh, have a certain awareness of 
there's something going on here that I don't like. Now, whether the director turns that into part of the plot, they've been manipulated by Abaddon the Destroyer all along into changing <laughs> their costume, or whether they decide to break that fourth wall and have the actors realise they're being manipulated uh, it, by players is entirely up to you. There's a lot of flexibility there, I think. Right, but I think, I think the default tone is interesting because in, in they came from uh, Beneath the Sea, part of the fun, particularly in, in the, the quips, is that you have these very specific kind of moments that are very likely going to be played at the absolute wrong time in the script, as it were. Yes. Um, so like referring to Mama's apple pie and finding a place where that only really vaguely makes sense to what you're actually doing. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in uh, uh, They Came From Beyond the Grave... Um, it's much more, these are very earnest lines and, mm. but the, the, the context is probably more likely to come up, but the, the earnestness of it becomes itself a point of humor. Yeah. It's um, more of a like, get, get, get thee back, you fiends of hell kind of stuff. Right. Exactly. Or, or like, you know, everything becomes like an elaborate mystery in which you un- unwind the occult threads of this horrible situation. Um, <laughs> they're, 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 they're earnest and they're just so Deeply earnest. And again, it's something I noticed when we were watching all those trailers is that there's a very specific kind of language. It it, it, it doesn't sound like modern speech. It, it sounds like this almost Victorianish language creeping into the 70s, which is why when you mentioned the two time frames, I thought when I started actually working on it, I was like, oh, this is actually really, really good because they talk like Victorian melodramatic characters, even though they're mm-hmm. theoretically in the 70s. Which you do actually see in good 70s horror movies. Like you see that in sure. The Exorcist, for instance. Yeah. That's probably the most famous example of it. Because whenever the priest is doing various exorcisms, he doesn't sound like a 1970s person. You know, he sounds right. like a, a 19th century, you know, soothsayer of some sort. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Naturalistic dialogue only really started becoming mainstream in the 90s. I'm sure there's plenty mm-hmm. of movies prior to that where it was present, but... Uh, a lot of people point to Tarantino for the, I guess, side chat uh, that characters mm. have in his movies that feels like, oh, okay, this feels real. Whereas in the 1970s movies, especially like these ones, uh, you get the impression watching them that a lot of these actors have just stepped off of a stage where characters and plays always speak like this. And the people who are writing movies have probably written plays as well. They probably started by writing mm-hmm. for the theatre. So, yeah, there's a certain pinched quality to the dialogue that does feel like 19th century dialogue because in in the theatre, quite often, it sounds different to in the movies, especially modern movies. Um, so oh, I think that's a really... That's a smart thing you pointed out because it that I that didn't even occur to me when I was developing this, but <laughs> um, but the but no the earnestness of, the, of things like the quips, even the way the game is written, is definitely there. Uh, uh, even to the point that when I was running uh, the actual play for Red Moon Role Playing, I, I think by the time this episode goes out, two episodes of that will be out on redmoonroleplaying.com there's a scene where our raconteur character sees someone hit by a blow dart, because that's always going to happen. Sure. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, the victim keels over going blue, at which point she decides to belt out the quip, that's a dead body. <laughs> and the person was just going to be dying. There was going to be the opportunity to uh, save their life. But I thought, 
you know what, if the raconteur is going to stand there, point, and I can again imagine the camera zooming in on her face saying, that's a dead body, then then we just shifted the tone of the game. And I said, okay, well, you can make your dice roll. If you uh, succeed with X number of successes, you take directorial control. But I would like to suggest that, that directorial control is, yes, indeed, the person is dead. Your, your quip is correct. Uh, uh, and sure enough, uh, the person died immediately. So they didn't look the fool for proclaiming in the middle of the university, this person is dead. Uh, <laughs> Right, but see, that's the thing is like that, that, that that's a different level of humor. And so um, I, th- I, I, I know a lot of people are going to approach this uh, uh, either completely without any context from underneath the sea um, or with the context of the previous game. But even though it shares a, a, a lineage with the previous game, it's not really a supplement. It's, it's doing a very different thing in a very mm-hmm. similar space. Um, and I think that's kind of importance to people to realize is that if you're both these sets of humor, like they're completely compatible with each other. And again, and I, uh, I think said, it's, or both you said, it's very flexible in terms of, of how you approach it. Um, but it's coming from a default of, of over the top rather than from silly juxtaposition. Yeah, totally. It's, it's one of those things too, where like, it's, you know, we keep saying like 1970s, 1970s, like nothing would preclude you from, you know, running a game in the sixties or the eighties or even the nineties with this game. Um, it's totally doable because it, it really wasn't until I mean, yes, there were a lot of slasher flicks and stuff in the in the eighties that were pretty popular, but I, I I feel like it wasn't really until the nineties that we started getting super serious about most horror movies. Um, sure, there were serious horror movies before that. Obviously, we had Poltergeist, we had The Exorcist, we we talked about a few of these, but also the eighties gave us things like Killer Clowns from Outer Space, right. um, yeah, and post post Scream. We've had very few campy horror movies. There have been a few, but they mm-hmm. tend to be kind of like an homage to previous horror movies. Um, right. Or they tend to be doing a different kind of humor, things like Tucker and Dale versus Evil, which is one of my favorite movies. Yeah, um, it's amazing. Fantastic movie. Yeah, I, I, I love it, but it's, it's, it's definitely not campy in the same way that Killer Clowns from Outer Space is. Right. Um, or, you know, Bat People or whatever, <laughs> like all these terrible movies. Yeah, I mean, and also, I mean, uh, uh, you also have movies that try horror movies that are specifically trying to take campy concepts and turn them into serious concepts, like the Saw franchise. I mean, on paper, it looks like a traditional eighty style campy horror film, but it's taken to uh, a, a terrifying extreme. You think and it so looks it like comes- a campy eighties horror film on paper? So you, a guy puts you in a, in a bunch of ro- into a rooms, and he has to go through a bunch of arbitrary tests. To be able to escape, it, it, it sounds like a pretty straightforward '80s style horror. Yeah, film. I guess. Sorry, I'm a, I'm a Saw fan. Um. <laughs> sure, but that's the thing is, it, it subverts that concept really well to where people who are familiar with older films can go, "Oh, I see kind of my end. This is like the kind of stuff I've seen before." Mm-hmm. And then you go in and say, "Oh, now we're going to push that to its logical conclusion and go, oh, that's actually not fun at all. That's actually really uncomfortable.'" Yeah. Um, but I mean, so but you, that, more to your point is that culturally we've moved largely away from those kinds of films to the point where something like Saw works, because it's the oh this is going to be a stupid film oh wow this is really uncomfortable that's that's kind of, and now the Saw's established franchise it, it, it could jettison even that little bit of baggage right yeah it's now become its own thing it doesn't have to do with it anymore. I mean, when I, when, I, when I say I'm a Saw fan, by the way, just to clarify for the listeners, I do not like every single movie in the franchise. I do own every single movie in the franchise, but I feel like it got really muddy in the middle and then it kind of pulled itself back near the end. So, mm-hmm. and I am very excited for the new Saw movie coming out. There we so, go. I, I've got a bit of a theory as to why, 
uh, horror movies started getting divided between what is good and what is bad in the probably mid to late 90s and beyond. Okay. And it's down to the bargain bin uh, or mm. straight straight to video, straight to DVD mm-hmm. uh, style that became more prevalent in the 90s, uh, where I don't know whether it was simply down to the fact that fewer movies were produced in the 1980s and before, but even bad movies like, uh, let's think, What Became of Jack and Jill, which is a pretty gritty horror movie, but not exactly high quality, would have appeared in the theatre, in the movie theatre, or a mm-hmm. drive-in, a drive-in theatre. Uh, you would have had B-movies, of course, B-movies, not necessarily as a mark of quality, but in that they would be double-billed with a better movie, a yep. higher-budget movie. So everything was still seen on the same screen, and that meant that just as a an excellent horror movie might elevate its B-feature, it could be drawn down by the B feature mm-hmm. and have horror as a genre classified dimly as a whole. But now the only horror movies that really get into cinemas are the ones that are likely to draw wide audiences. Anything else is made by what is it, asylum uh, features mm-hmm. or, or oh, yeah, the other... ones that like knock off every single movie that comes out. <laughs> exactly. Yes. And yeah, they go straight to DVD and I understand they make a fair amount of money for the company because they don't have to pay that much for distribution. But I think that has played into the perception of horror as a more marketable genre. Um, at least uh, that's just a completely anecdotal theory of mine. Um, you know, not based on any evidence yeah. at all, but it makes I sense mean, in my head. If we really drill down and got into it, we'd have to look at like the rise of VHS and yeah. when everybody suddenly had a VHS in their house, and then also when VHS became more affordable. To yep. go, you know, buy a bargain bin movie or to go rent them from, you know, video rental stores. And then when DVDs came around in the 90s and then suddenly you could, you know, there's there's been a bin at like Walmart and Target and stuff of $5 DVDs for many, many years now. Yep. Um, and I have I have bought terrible horror movie collections out of there where it's like, it's like, oh, here's 10 classic horror movies for, you know, $5. And like I might buy it because it has uh, House on Haunted Hill as one of the 10 movies. Right. And the other nine suck. But I'll wait five bucks for House of Haunted Hill. That's a good movie. <laughs> and then you're like, oh, you know what? I'm bored. I'll watch one of the other films and see what happens. They're also really good to put on during like Halloween parties and stuff. Like, oh, I'll put oh, on yeah, this, you know, 20-hour DVD collection of bad black and white horror movies. And it's just good background noise, you know? It's just it's just on the TV. Or, or it's just images. Like, we're not even listening to it. It's just on and there's music playing. Yeah, and uh, Netflix, Prime, and Shudder have kind of supplanted that as the mm-hmm. bargain bin. You know, there are some good movies in there, especially Netflix. So obviously Netflix, as I think we pointed out before, has that um, perception of being a well-curated shortlist of movies and TV shows you might want to watch. But in mm-hmm. fact, there's a great raft of content on there that you just have to search for. Right. Whereas Amazon Prime kind of bundles it all into the same mess. Yeah, so yeah. does Hulu. Yeah, and you kind of have to pick through the crap to find the diamonds. Um, and Shudder is is a horror streaming service for horror lovers, so it's got no real um, differentiation between quality and, and poor quality. Uh, but yeah, I, I would suggest, well, I guess in all cases, streaming is supplanting that kind of media. But we're, we're really getting off topic from They Came From Beyond the Grave. Well, I was, was going to say, it's like, 
because because I mean we could actually go down how they came from beyond the grave is kind of a reflection of of postmodern deconstruction of horror tropes, but instead we're going to turn slightly away from that. And for people who are unfamiliar with uh, either game, um, this is based on StoryPath, but it's a slightly different version of StoryPath than we've used for some of our other games. So maybe Matthew, you talk a little bit about how the game actually plays. Yeah, of course. Uh, so uh, as most of the listeners are likely to know, StoryPath is a D10 dice pool system where, as a general rule, you're aiming for eights and above to get your successes. Uh, you'll be adding your skills and your attributes together. So for instance, uh, I may be wishing to resist the mind control of Dracula, because why not? And I might want to add my skill of integrity to my attribute of resolve and count up the number of dots, roll that many D10s, the numbers of eights and above that I get, I succeed on. Now, that's the system as a core. There are things that can occur to complicate matters. The one I always uh, use as an example, and I think appears in pretty much every one of our books as an example, is I'm trying to escape a werewolf, so I climb a chain-link fence. As I'm, mm -hmm. as I'm climbing over it, there's barbed wire <laughs> at the top. So that the barbed wire is the complication. You can climb up it if you succeed, but the complication basically means if you don't buy off the complication, which, to put it simply, is an additional level of difficulty. Um, which won't make you fail the roll, but will add a complication. Your pocket gets torn open and your wallet falls out, which means, yes, you might escape, but now the werewolf has your name and address, as an example. And there's also enhancements, which, uh, again, commonly used example is uh, taking aim before firing a gun. So you gain an enhancement to your, uh, your roll, which means if you succeed, you gain an additional success on top of it. So that's the dice rolling mechanic. Uh, beyond that, this game does differ from Story Path in the use of quips, which Eddie has mentioned. They are one-liners mm. that uh, your characters can spout out for additional dice, and they're not always uh, relevant, they're not always appropriate, but they should always be entertaining to the people at the table, or at the very least to yourself and the director, the person running the game. And if you make a quip and your quip is then followed by a successful dice roll using your additional die. Uh, so let's say we do the, uh, the the quip of, I don't know, um, I detect a trail of death and we're only at the beginning. Uh, that's your mm -hmm. quip. And you say it's because you've just found a dead body. Well, people smile. They give a light applause. They say, yes, that was a good use of a quip. So you decide that your next dice roll is, let's investigate this room for clues. So you're commanding people. You mm -hmm. do command plus presence. to, And so you add a die because of your successful quip. Let's say you succeed. You can then use that quip again later. But the next time you use that quip, you gain two dice. And so it goes. You might have that use of that quip again a third time because you succeeded on the second time. Now you have an additional three dice. So it becomes a punchline machine where your character starts just issuing the same quip over and over again, uh, <laughs> hopefully to the amusement and a little bit of irritation of the people around you, <laughs> uh, because you're not evoking um, you're not evoking Kubrick. You're evoking movies like The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires and mm -hmm. Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell. These aren't top bill movies as a general rule. Uh, and I guess the cinematic, the cinematic, the mechanic that pulls most people into they came from and I think retains their interest is cinematics. 
And cinematics are your most meta power of the of the meta powers in this game, in that they are powers that you as players use to affect the story or affect your characters from a, a directorial perspective or a production perspective. As an example, we've got a couple that were carried over from Beneath the Sea, not many, uh, such as the ever-popular deleted scene. So you're crawling your way down a pipe and you come face-to-face with a uh, vampiric slug. Well, it would have been very useful to have a knife in your hand at that point, but you never described yourself as having one. At that point, you can use your deleted scene cinematic and say that before I came out to uh, crawl face-first into this drainage pipe, I made sure I was carrying my entire tool belt, including a knife. Um, And you may have Missing Reel. Missing Reel is one of the most popular ones from Beneath the Sea, and so it made its uh, journey to Beyond the Grave 2, where... In this case, you may be surrounded by a pack of very hungry, angry werewolves. There's no way out. None of you have silver on you, and you don't have that crucial deleted scene cinematic. You insert a missing reel, and your characters end up somewhere completely different uh, some time after the being surrounded by werewolves. You may never reference what happened when you were surrounded. You don't know necessarily how you escaped uh the characters should have some knowledge and can make vague asides and references to something happening but will never state directly how they got out of that situation mm-hmm. no one will ever know because it's a missing reel now we have some cinematics that are very specific to this game uh such as the aforementioned costume change where let's say you're trying to sneak into a cult doing as a cult ist and uh you didn't you don't have a costume well that's all right because uh, as you walk from this set to that set you can play costume change and all of a sudden you're in the blood red robes of the cult of abaddon <laughs> uh you can have and this is actually my favorite one in this game and it's such a subtle one uh cheap set appears in beneath the sea but we've got small set in beyond the grave And small set basically confines everyone in this scene to the same room. It is implying that the movie uh, production budget is gone. You can no longer (laughs) film outside. There's no exterior shots. There's no more rooms in the house. Uh, You're stuck here. This is a play now. And that (laughs) that means no one can escape. There will be no resolution to the scene until someone dies or something <laughs> something drama- suitably dramatic happens that would uh, naturally lead to a like a cut to black or a fade to black. Yeah, or like like like, like killer comes in and they finally kill him, you know, whatever. Yeah, exactly. And I, I just love the idea of having a cinematic that pens people in and you get to the end of natural dialogue and think, well, shit, we're still here. Okay, so <laughs> <laughs> so you're the murderer uh just just to move uh, the plot on but yeah we have these uh, various things a uh, last point because i know i'm uh, rattling on at me i was gonna say i i just imagine you just staring un- unblinking at your screen right now just uh going off script as you always did for your <laughs> vampire videos i'm staring unblinking at the microphone so very close uh the Last one I wanted to point out is, and it's one of my favorite mechanics in all story path games, and we have a slight adjustment to it in Beyond the Grave, is uh, rewrites called Mm -hmm. momentum in other story path games. And rewrites 
the reason I like them is because it rewards failure. Mm-hmm. Every time you fail a dice roll or every time you choose not to roll and accept a failure, you gain a rewrite for the writer's pool. And those cinematics that I mentioned are purchased using rewrites. Different cinematics come at different costs. You can also use rewrites for re-rolls or additional dice, essentially. So it's a nice sort of exchange system of accepting that in this kind of narrative, you've got to fail several times before you can succeed. It's the old hero's journey in a way, but it makes sense because in this kind of medium that's evoking cinema, characters aren't always triumphant from beginning to end. Otherwise, it wouldn't be an interesting story. So I I love it when players playing They Came From or indeed any other story path game choose to not roll. They basically say, I'm going to fail this. I'm going to take the punch to the jaw or I'm going to lose the person in the car chase and take a rewrite because I want to be able to use that later to make Mm -hmm. my action then more impressive. Absolutely. And we we have, there's various other aspects that will bespoke parts of Beyond the Grave that I won't go into now because it's very much a toolkit, modular if you like. You don't have to use everything. You don't have to use all the tropes. You don't have to use all the trademarks uh, that also exist in this game, but you can. And depending on what you use, it makes the experience completely different from game to game. Yeah. One of the things that I love about the about this game and beneath the sea that I, I i feel like it's important to talk about is that the book itself makes me laugh aloud like when i was mm-hmm. editing they came from beneath the sea i was i, I was just in stitches in, in in certain parts of not only the fiction but various descriptions of monsters and things like that and then i think that we actually dialed up dialed up the humor a tiny bit for this one but it's a very specific kind of humor but like same thing when I was like when I was writing some of my stuff and then I came back to do my 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 red lines, I was laughing at stuff I had written six weeks prior. <laughs> that's that's not normal. That's not a thing that I usually do. You know, most right. of my writing is pretty straightforward, almost like t- technical writing. That's, that's that's usually my my strength. Um, but for this one, like I, I, I let loose and I had a good time and yeah, I I came back and I would read something and I would laugh at it and my boyfriend would be like. What are you laughing at? And I'm like, I wrote, I'm laughing at something that I wrote, so I'm being a narcissist right now. But then I went through <laughs> and looked at some of the other writers' monsters and things, and everyone was just so damn clever on this book. Like, there's so many things that made me laugh. Like, one of the one of the monsters is, is, is described as having an inhuman form and a humanish form, which I thought was great. <laughs> uh, I think that the devil himself's health can be any factor of six six six. Yep. What uh, <laughs> one of the things that 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 I wrote that made me laugh is I I wrote a haunted house and when I got to its stats I wrote it's a house and when I got to its skills I wrote it's still a house like it doesn't yep. do anything. <laughs> um, it's a haunted house. One of my favorite parts of the book. <laughs> the, when when I go through stat blocks as a developer, I'm thinking, oh god, how's this one going to look different? Uh, can can we make these uh, different types of vampire? For instance, I know Dixie, you wrote a lot of vampires for this one, and very well too. Yeah, I wrote all three of them on purpose so that I could try to make them different. Like that's like yeah. why I had one one writer take all three was because I was otherwise afraid that the noble vampire and Dracula would be like the same thing. Mm. And yeah, when I'm looking through stat blocks, and it's the same for any game I'm developing, whether it's this Vampire the Masquerade, what have you. 
Uh, I'm trying to keep an eye out for differences. And then when we got to the haunted house, I was thinking, okay, you know, crack my knuckles. How's this one going to fare against the the Ghoulion, the the haunted ship that we've got? Mm -hmm. Oh, it's just a house. Okay, it, it is just a house. Brilliant. Okay, on to the next one. <laughs> what, the math what, checks what, out. What, what skills does a house have? I mean, but but yeah, I mean, I yeah, I I, have, I flipped through the the monster chapter before I stopped to editing, and uh, also some of the setting chapter, which is the other one that I worked on, and just it's so funny. Like all the fellow authors were were, were great. Everybody hit a tone really well. It, it's it's I, I don't know. It's it's a fun book to read. Like, even if you don't play the game, it's a fun, campy, silly book to read. All the fiction is funny. Um, and that's that's how I felt about Beneath the Sea. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad that we hit that same thing for, for this one, having all the, like, little, you know, director's notes and quotes. Like, some of the quotes in the book are actual movie quotes, and some of the quotes are completely made-up quotes by from random people that could be a character in your game. We don't know. Whatever you yep. want to do. But, but yeah, it's it's... It's just a, a, a delightful book to, to read, in my opinion. That's always been the intention with both Beneath the Sea and Beyond the Grave. I want these games to be fun. And I know we've discussed at some length the idea of fun in role-playing games and whether all games should be fun and things like that. And that's always been an interesting thing to discuss. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that at their core, they came from games are supposed to be nothing more than fun. I'm not really writing these for people to have deep introspective journeys playing them. And by all means, if you want to, do feel free. I'm sure there's plenty of tools there to do so. But if people at the table smile, or even better, laugh while they're playing this game, then that's it. They've done their job. Because uh, not to sound too... Uh, jaded by world events right now. I think we all need a bit of humor, and uh, it's it's valuable to be able to socialize, uh, play with our friends, whether it's in person, probably not right now, but or online, and have a laugh, and then be able to remember that laughter, be able to think back, oh, that was a good evening because we did something absolutely stupid. In they came from beyond the grave. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's you know that's what I want, and so if people can get that out of this, and certainly there was a lot of laughter in uh, our actual plays of Beneath the Sea, and mm-hmm. we've got Beyond the Grave as well on our YouTube channel now. Mm-hmm. The uh, session I ran at Onyx PathCon. Uh, also, I ran a game for Redmond Role Playing, and I think uh, I mentioned on here that uh, the it's their typical uh, forte to tightly edit their episodes to sort of cut out the outer character stuff to make it more like a radio play. But I had to ask them, I said, please keep it in, keep the, the laughter at everyone's actions in on this Mm -hmm. game, because that is what tells the audience what we're aiming for. Because if you don't have laughter, it will just look like a bad or sound like a bad 1970s horror movie. And I don't think everyone wants to play that without that air of uh, humor going in. Mm -hmm. and i mean there's there's so much you could do that that isn't even in the book to like change the game or enhance a little bit like if you want to do mst 3k style commentary the entire time you're playing have fun go for it you you could have a good time with that um one of the things that i was thinking about for a possible house rule that i'd probably put in is that if you title your game right title it like a movie because you're doing like a one shot you're gonna play for about you know three four hours it's a it's a it's a longish movie um 
if you title your game, then I think that every time one of the players says the title of your game, they should get a reward. Because I love that in bad <laughs> horror movies where people mm-hmm. will just like randomly say the title of the movie. And it's, it, 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 it is often kind of a non sequitur where you're like, why, why would you say that? But you get a point. You get a point for saying the title, I guess. That's weird. So, yeah. Oh, man. Yes. I respect that. Now I'm thinking we should do rules for communal quips where everyone can tap a quip and escalate that die. It's not too late to. Ch- <laughs> <laughs> it's not in layout yet. <laughs> I think that that would that would maybe a single paragraph I could add uh, before the end of today. Uh, so yeah, yeah, okay, good idea. Let's do that. Title of go. the game as a quip. This is how we work on uh, on, on books. We do it live on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, watching a TV series on Netflix uh, the other day. This is relevant. Um, bizarrely for me, uh, called Into the Night. It's a Belgian TV show about uh, a plane full of passengers that basically have to stay on the dark side of the earth because the sun is killing people. It sounds nonsense, okay. uh, but it's actually quite good. Um, and yet, it was in the at the very end of the first episode where the pilot says to uh, the voluntary co-pilot, who is one of the passengers who happens to know how to fly a helicopter, Mm-hmm. He says, how are we going to survive this? Uh, that was my Belgian accent. Because <laughs> uh, he's actually speaking in French. And she says, uh, he says, where are we going to go? And she looks at him and vaguely at the camera and says, into the night. And, yes. then, the, and then the title comes up on the screen. And then you've got the credits. And I thought, Jesus Christ, you couldn't have over-egged that anymore. That is one of my <laughs> favorite tropes on tvtropes.com is the, the, the title drop. Um, I am often looking out for that when I am watching a TV show or movie where I'm like, like, are they going to say it? Are they going to say the name? Is it going to happen? Uh, and it's, it's pretty great when it does. Like, I think that Buffy the Vampire Slayer refers to herself as that like once or twice in the whole series. And it mm. always makes me happy when you actually get, no, I'm Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And I'm like, <laughs> yes, yes, you are. We know this because we're watching this TV show. Um, <laughs> Obviously, it doesn't mean quite as much when you're talking about a show like, I don't know, CSI, because they're just going to say that all the time. But right. but but when it's a show that has a really specific title or a movie that has a really specific title and it gets dropped at some point in the movie, I'm always like, yes, that's so silly. And I love it. The movie critic Mark Kermode does a similar thing when there's a docudrama or movie where there's a very obvious topic that is at some point going to come up it usually happens in biopics uh, and mm-hmm. he calls it the chubby hmm moment because of the karen carpenter biopic that is going along quite happily until someone says to karen carpenter oh you look a little chubby in this uh, photo yeah and then the camera just goes to her and she puts her hand on her chin and says chubby hmm and you know exactly the, the trajectory yep. that the rest of this biography is going not, to go I'm not trying to laugh point. at Karen Carpenter, by the way. That was a terrible, no. terrible thing yeah. that happened to her. Right. Yes. Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it's a common conceit in these things uh, that sometimes you need to telegraph to the audience or the director seems to think or the writer seems to think you need to telegraph to the audience what exactly is about to happen. Right. It, it's the kind of this is now a topic change. Here we go. Yeah. And like one of the things that I love about about title drops is when they actually um like do it in a meta way i think i think arrested development did it where one of the characters actually says like you know your your average male is stuck in a state of arrested development and the narrator of the show goes hey that's the name of the show 
<laughs> um, and like it, uh, it uh, doesn't count in most places if if like I said, if the title is something that is also a central character, so like House, The West Wing, Transformers, whatever, like those mm. all don't count because, of course, Transformers <laughs> is going to say Transformers all the time. But surprisingly, not as often as you think. But yes, go well, on. no, but I mean, right. you know what I mean. I know what you mean. Yes. Um. But but then yeah, when it's like live action movies and stuff, and it just happens kind of randomly in the middle of it, it's 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 pretty great. It makes me happy. I have to say, actually, I'm not. Sure, I've never been certain who the masters of the universe were, and He Man and the masters of the universe. I know that's. Uh, I was trying to think of other um, titles like this, and obviously He Man comes up a lot because that's his name. Right. And yet the show is called He Man and the Masters of the Universe. But uh, is Skeletor a master of the universe or man at arms? Uh, Fistor is definitely a master of the universe. Yeah, yeah. Well, Zorko, uh, trap jaw, trap master of the universe. Uh, answers on a postcard, please, everybody. Who are the masters of the universe? I'm guessing Hordak and King Hiss. Well, while while you're trying to answer that question, in the meantime, definitely go check out um, the "They Came from Beyond the Grave" Kickstarter. Um, <laughs> like like Matthew said, um, it is going live. Uh, it should be live when you're listening to this, but it will be going live after we record it. So. We're assuming it's done a million and a half dollars already. Um, you know, something something nice and sustainable. Are we going to go for the Price is Right uh, betting? Oh god, <laughs> that's true. That's tradition, isn't it? Uh, okay, so all right, let's let's try and go for realistic figures this time. Okay, uh, it's your so... game, so you start. All right, so I'm going to be optimistic. I think it is going to do slightly better than Beneath the Sea. Which, if I recall, did uh, somewhere like 42,000, 45,000 maybe. Uh, so I think this one is going to get as high as 52,316 dollars. <laughs> That's so specific. Make it happen, audience. If it goes above that, cancel your pledge. Ignore that. Dixie, what is your thought on that? Um, I'm so torn because I feel like in a different uh, time <laughs> of the world and how things were going on in the world, I'd be super optimistic about this one. Um, mm-hmm. But I feel like I need to be a little bit more conservative just because we are in a pandemic and there are people without jobs and everybody's really uncertain right now. Um, I do think it's a great time to get some laughter in your life, so I definitely at least check out the manuscript. You can totally play off that. Um, mm-hmm. Also check out the amazing trailer that was done for this because it made yep. me laugh for four minutes straight. Um, <laughs> it is kind of long for a trailer. Like most most trailers are, you know, 30 seconds to two minutes, right? This trailer is like four minutes long. Um, however, yeah. I have justified that in my mind by saying that the average one-shot game of They Came From Beyond the Grave takes about four hours, so it needs a double-length trailer. Yes. There we go. That's, that's, that's my justification for it. Uh, it is very, very funny and goes on just slightly too long, which is my favorite kind of joke as well. Like the one right. that just kind of won't stop, and you're like, okay, is this still happening? Okay, now it's funny again. Um, yes. <laughs> so yeah, I'm 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 with Matthew. I I think it does have a broader appeal than Beneath the Sea, um, and I think that it could do really amazingly. Um, I just don't know that I want to give any like concrete numbers because of the world right now. Fair enough. Well, I respect your decision, so the pressure's on you, Eddie. 
Um, I do feel like, um, like you said, it has a broader appeal. I feel like, on the one hand, some people have pointed out that like they would feel a little more comfortable if the if they came from Beneath the Sea had come out. But as I know, I've pointed out, and some other people pointed out, this is not really a supplement. This isn't even like Monarchies of Mount, where it's kind of connected to a central world. This is a, really a different game. It's using the same engine. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think we're going to bring in more people who are more easily enamored with, I want, I could do funny hammer horror than doing a mystery science theater kind of send up in a role-playing game. Uh, combined with the fact that a lot of our fans are coming from a horror perspective, World Darkness, Chronicles, Darkness, whatnot. And so doing a, a it's not explicitly a funny version of those games, but there's going to be a strong connection there mm-hmm. in their minds. Um, so I'm going to say $60,000. Yeah, like that's that's one thing that I do want to say is like for, for any of our audience that mostly likes the horror games, I feel like everybody has played at least one session of one of our games, if not many, many sessions that has devolved into something yes. farcical. Um, yes. I have played... I played a vampire game where somebody rolled really, really, really well while we were driving in a car and ended up pulling like a tiki torch out of somebody's lawn and throwing it and staking a vampire that was pursuing us. Um, I think that was actually in a Hunter the Reckoning game. Um, wow. But like just just <laughs> r- ridiculous stuff. It was one of those things where he got like eight successes. We were like, uh, I guess you're the best at this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but like... Everyone has played that game where it's, it's turned farcical, and sometimes that's what everybody likes, and you're all having a good time, and sometimes that's frustrating for the one player who's trying to play their character seriously. Um, right. But for those of you who need to let that out and don't want to derail your Vampire the Masquerade game by making it silly, this is a great place for that. Like, you know, take, take a break for one week from an ongoing campaign and run this for fun. It's a really nice, lighthearted way to kind of get all the sillies out. And I think, like like you keep saying, and as as all all these emails from companies that I keep getting going in these trying times. Um, <laughs> but I think we actually could use a laugh occasionally. It's it's super easy to play via, you know, Zoom or what have you, any kind of mm-hmm. video program. If you're going to stream it, uh, please let us know because we would yes. love to see it, promote it, what have you, because uh, we, we love seeing people play our games. But I think it really is a nice game to like it's it's not one that's going to take up so much of your time that you need to devote like a year long chronicle to it. This is something that you can, you know, maybe if you play vampire every Saturday night, then play it three nights. And then the fourth Saturday, play this for fun and just let it all out there and be silly and be campy and ridiculous and watch a horror movie for inspiration and have a good time. Um, that's, that's, that's how I would recommend kind of like using this, this game. I mean, if, if you want to play this every single week, it's your favorite game ever, then please do that instead. Um, but if you don't, you know, if you just want to take a break from, from the more serious stuff, I think this is a great place to land. Absolutely. So, uh, check out the Kickstarter. Um, we'll have, uh, links to the actual plays Matthew mentioned in the show notes so you can kind of see how the game plays. Um, I know at least one of them is also going to be linked on the Kickstarter as well. So go check it out. And in the meantime, um, if people wanted to contact you and put the title of the thing in the thing, Dixie, how would they find you online? <laughs> find me at Dixie Cyanide on most social media or DixieCochran.com. And please, yes, throw me your, your title drops. That's one of my favorite favorite tropes. It's so funny every time it happens. And Matthew? Well, they can find me as ClackClickBang on Twitter and otherwise contact me via MatthewDawkins.com. Uh, and you can find me at uh, pugsteady.com or pugsteady on social media. Um, uh, uh, definitely tell me uh, your favorite examples of, of amazingly over the top uh, 
horror movie moments um, because they're, they're just fun in general. I yes. <laughs> um, ideally with clips from YouTube because those are always great. Uh, but you can find all of us uh, uh, on theonyxpath.com. You can find us on our Discord. You can find us on various Facebook groups. Um, uh, generally, the three of us do tend to kind of hang out on Twitter. So if you tag us on Twitter, we'll probably chat with you there. I hope you have a good time uh, checking out uh, They Came from Beyond the Grave. Uh, if you only pledge $1, you can get the entire manuscript and get a sense of what the whole game's about. So it's very low cost. And, and like said, you can play the game with just the manuscript. It's not going to look pretty, but it will, all the rules were there. Yeah, um, but if you so, like it so, and you want the cool artwork and everything else, you should definitely actually pick it up. Including one art piece that I swear is based on Jeremy Brett, and nothing will convince me otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but with that said, many worlds... One pathcast. Wake up in the morning and walk the path with Dixie, Matthew, and Eddie. Listen in the car while you're in the bath to Dixie, Matthew, and Eddie. They've got banter, interviews, songs, and stories, but they're not visual, they're auditory. So many worlds, but only one podcast with Dixie, Matthew, and Eddie. Just plug in your headphones and then you'll have a blast with Dixie, Matthew, and Daddy. It's the Onyx Pathcast, just give a listen. It's so much better than television. It's Dixie, Matthew, and Daddy in the morning. Though really, it's Fridays at noon. <laughs>